This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alex Opolis and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. So here we are today, back in the Ohm Radio Studio, uh, Call to Adventure, Alex Opolis. This is John Duckworth, and we're here with Stan Gray. And a little background, Stan graduated from USC and headed off in search of a little truth and pleasure. And this pursuit finally led him to Charleston, South Carolina, after various gigs in film production, poker joints, boat refinishing, a music publication, <laughs> and working for a congresswoman in D.C. Since he planted his feet... In our fair community, Stan has worked with Charleston Magazine, the city's Office of Cultural Affairs, the College of Charleston, and Sweet Tea Recording Studio. Today, 20 years deep in Charleston's creative community, Stan and his wife, Sunny Rakestraw Gray, some of you may know her from the little black book for every busy woman, share a son, Garrison, and a daughter, Stella, and is the founder and CEO of Dig South. Uh, the mission is to help entrepreneurs and startups succeed in the South by connecting them to the contacts, content, and capital they need to launch, scale, and thrive for themselves. You'll find Stan brainstorming Southern success by day, singing and playing rock and roll by night. Stan, welcome to the Call to Adventure. Thank you, John. Good to see you and Alex both. Yeah, nice welcome. To be here. Absolutely. Well, as I you know, ended that with a little rock and roll, um, I had to ask, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm learning how to play guitar, bass and I are both, and it's not an easy thing to do. How long have you been doing that? I started playing about 30 years ago, so it's been, okay. a, been a long time, but it's, you know, it never gets easier and it never gets harder. It's just yeah. sort of an instrument that speaks to you or to me in different ways, and um, you know, I always thought of it as therapy or a way to, to work you know, problems and interesting issues or you know, tell stories. Get, you just dive into the instrument and let it tell you what it wants to do. Did you pick it up on your own? Um, yes, or, or, yes and no. I took a, few, a handful of lessons yeah. um, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I grew okay. up, but I didn't stick with the lessons. Guitar from the start? Guitar from the start. Okay. Well, no, I take that back. Okay. I'm lying. No, oh, I, nice. I, start, I spent two years playing the violin okay. and a couple of years playing the piano between like ages 8 and 12 or so, yeah. and then I switched to guitar. And with the guitar, you know, it's one of those things where you, people say they're self-taught sometimes. I always call BS on that mm -hmm. because we all learn by jamming with other people, typically playing in a band. I've learned just as much from just observing people mm -hmm. and sitting in with them and inviting, you know, crazy characters to play with me and show me what you know as I have yeah, from, right. the, from the few lessons I took from a conservatory-trained person. So, you know, I, I don't see... I guess I don't need learning to be formalized for right. me in order okay. to absorb it and, and you know gain some kind of knowledge or lesson out of it. So that's the beauty of music, you know. It's it's what you hear, anyways, you know. Right. So so it's it's there's there's a different element to it that takes it out of the the sort of uh, uh, the linear aspect of trying to learn in that way and just going in and 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 feeling it and and making it happen. And you know, I felt a little bit of that. I got a little taste of it. Sure. And, and I'm hooked. I love it. Yeah, it's highly yeah. addictive. It is. Yeah. It is for sure. Yeah. One of the one of the questions we always love to ask our guest is, uh, who locally do you find inspires you? And and you referred to your wife Sunny Gray, Mark Sloan from the Halsey, and Mayor Joe Riley. And and you went on to say people who sustain and balance excellence with integrity over a long period of time. Right. Well, I think when you're young, for me anyway, you know, you, it's easy to see the uh, the rock star or the person who makes a, an incredible splash immediately, whether that's a you know, famous author or you know, a talented actor or someone in that capacity. And the older you get when you know, you're in the trenches, you have various jobs and you run into people and you start to learn, you, know, you notice that certain people have either good habits or they are 
you know, brilliant in a particular capacity, know how to build teams. And, but, you know, for me, the people that are able to sustain that time mm. and again and do that at a remarkably high level are fascinating. And they're, and they're the ones that I think that the older I get, maybe that's just, you know, when you're young, you think, oh, I'm going to, you know, live hard and die young and that kind of thing, you know, the yeah. romantic notion. But then when you start hitting your 30s and 40s, it doesn't you work think, that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think it might be nice to hang around for a little bit longer. True that. I, you, you, um, the word integrity, you know, I've always thought of, it's an interesting word because not many people say I don't have it. Right. Um, I've always thought of it as sort of doing the right thing when no one else was watching um, or looking. Yes. What What does the word integrity mean to you? It means exactly that. I mean, I've heard that quote mm. before and that, that resonated with me too. Mm. Um, but I think it also means occasionally irritating people or, you know, deciding maybe there's something that people call tradition, for example, and it's not necessarily rooted in anything ethical or, you know, something that, that may even make sense to sustain. And sometimes you have to challenge some of those notions, I think, mm. in order to push the envelope forward and to not only for personal growth, but for the growth of a, and health of the community and for a cause or something you believe in. So I think for me, having integrity is both, at, you know, behaving properly when no one is watching and, you know, you're letting your conscience be your guide, so to speak. But it's also taking that initiative to stand up for something you believe in when people are watching and you might have to confront them. Yeah, sure, sure. That's interesting. One of the things when you going back a little bit to sustaining something over a long period of time, the, uh, I asked somebody one time about their secret to success is somebody who had been doing in business for a really long time. And he said, you know, some people call me an overnight success. And he goes, and I guess in a lot of ways that's true. You know, I, I worked my butt off for 30 years and I woke up one day and I was a success. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Every year the Grammy Awards gives the best new artist award. And those are people who've typically been playing out for 10, 15 right. years. Right. Right. You right. Know, they finally yeah. have the album that hits. And what they mean is best new artist to sell product this year. Right. right. <laughs> but they didn't just but pick they, it up. No. Yeah. It's yeah. rarely, yeah. rarely happen. Occasionally, yeah. you know, but True. it's, it's yeah. a moonshot when that happens. What, what trait do you most admire in others and which do you most deplore? And when you talk about admire, you say service above self and deplore callous narcissism. And I was just curious because you are your vocation is in technology. Sure. Um, and when you think about social media, it seems like a large portion of that is callous narcissism. How do you... Do you agree with that? And how do you engage in that community with your consternation of that sort of characteristic? Sure. Um, I don't agree with that. And here's why. I think that social media, the tool itself is nothing but a tool. You know, much like a hammer or, you know, a rifle or, you know, any number, an artist's paintbrush. And I, so I think maybe what you're describing, you know, that narcissism is, is an expression of people using that channel. So I don't think that social media itself has created that or caused it to happen, but I do mm. think that people have a wider distribution of it now. And I think there was an adjustment period for people who, uh, you know, didn't grow up with those tools. Like I'm not a digital native like my kids are. Right. You know, they're fully immersed in it. And I don't think it's going to shock them or necessarily drive their behavior like maybe we think it will you know it, it's shocking to us and it's like wow anyone can put anything out there now and they're you know so-called haters on the web and people just you know trying to do those sorts of things but i think that creative people and thoughtful people will use those channels and tools in a way that we couldn't imagine the air of spring you know for example um i think that people will find ways to distribute really good information and help people and you know the way people are raising money now often you know, yeah that's true online and it it's given an outlet to people who otherwise had to go through many layers of bureaucracy let's say in the 60s or 70s you're trying to launch some sort of high profile nonprofit or you know any kind of business that, or something that's dedicated to serving people I think that would have been a much steeper, difficult climb if you weren't already politically connected, if you didn't come sure. from wealth, you weren't connected with those individuals. Today, a person with a brilliant idea, you know, whether it's something like Water Missions International, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're helping bring water to Columbia. I think you could get something off the ground like that or Charleston Waterkeeper or, you know, other initiatives. Um, I mean, you still have to have 
you know, capital and you still have to have charisma and you still have to have a mission and a drive and a capacity to pull it all together. But I'm a little off topic from the social media. But my point is that you know, using those digital channels now, I think that there's an opportunity there that didn't exist for people who weren't connected in that way. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, play that right back to music. You know, if you want to, uh, you want to create an album. Right. You know, I mean, man, I mean, the access to, to, to that ability is, is unheard of when you talk about from 1970 till, till, till now. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. And not only get, not only produce it, but actually get some airtime with it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I worked in the music business um, for Spin Magazine and right. for a, a studio. And I, you know, wrote songs and, and did very small tours, nothing major at all. Um, but I was, I was right in the middle of that great disruption and transition from, you know, stealing album files and converting to mp3 and out to streaming with spotify and you know i I see it as an opportunity for anybody to create things and yes it has hurt some people in the short term uh in terms of commercial sales but the people i think that are learning that if you develop a new business model and enough people are streaming and enough people are doing something in a in a innovative way that i think the opportunities are much greater than they've ever been especially especially for indie musicians yeah in particular, you know, so I, if, if you're trying to mimic a business model from the 80s, no, it's, you're, you're going to have a right. steep climb. If you step back and say, wow, I, you know, I, the, I, can, I can approach this any direction I want, you know, it, it's amazing. I think that, you know, a, a clever, brilliant artist, songwriter, musician, or really any artist, uh, uh, you know, for that matter, can carve their own path today. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. And then the level of connection that's available, uh, you know, when you talk about social media, right. just makes that all the more exciting. It, I guess, like you said, as a tool, I can appreciate that because I think, you know, as an artist, when as a photographer, when I switched from film to digital, there was a whole lot of naysayers who would immediately, you know, talk about the purity of the process. And, and right. you know, of course, my immediate reaction was, no, no, this is just a tool just like any other tool. And it's how you wield it. That's the important thing. This is a creative process. It's what right. it's all about, you know. Um, uh, speaking of creative process, one of the uh, guys who I love, and there's a book on your bookshelf, is uh, The Big Bad Book of Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't even, I never even heard that. It makes me laugh just hearing the title. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> well, you know, I haven't, uh, to be honest, I have, just I'm, into I'm it? just getting into it. I've read yeah. the first couple of chapters. It's an interesting take on him in terms of being someone who has achieved a great level of fame and made this transition from comedy into more serious yeah. you know type feature films but at the same time has has kind of rejected the PR machine mm-hmm. you know he has an 800 number right. to, to try to reach him he doesn't have handlers he when he makes appearances they're on his terms and, and I greatly admire that you know there's yeah. some there's some sort of Buddhist trickster quality to that yeah you know? I agree I, I think I think that Joseph Campbell you know I know you guys are big fans of yeah uh, writes a lot about the trickster and, and that being part of mythology. And I think Bill Murray has the essence of that quality. I mean, I don't, I don't know him personally. I'm just speaking as an outside observer. But uh, there's something really beautiful about achieving success without always plopping down on every talk show couch and without having a team of right. handlers that swarm and follow you into interviews and, and are, are like tweeting on your behalf. You know, there's something really admirable about just doing the work and letting it take care of itself. It's Frank, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah. A wonderful song, "My Way." Right. Right. It's uh, it's great to see people who are able to accomplish that. Speaking of uh, music, um, talking about Spotify, I had the opportunity to listen to Joe Strummer for the first time uh, over the past week, and uh, his uh, song "Bindi Baggy." Is that how oh. you pronounce it? Uh, Mindy Baggy, sure. Yeah. From, that's Joe Strummer and the Mescaleras. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to cut to that and uh, enjoy. Well, I was walking down the high road. No. 
got around here? I said, but where'd you go? Oh, deep in strictly Hindi down, down, and I'm walking down the road. We got rocks all locked up on me, that question being stopped up, but it'll win out. Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, and uh, I found out something new. He's from The Clash, so uh, That's he, right. he didn't yeah. win Best New Artist at the Grammys <laughs> last year, I guess. <laughs> 
Oh Lord, all the Joe Strummer fans, the Clash fans out there, starting yeah. already sending their hate email to I you. Fortunately, I'm not any any platform, so I won't see right. it. Uh, you said the Clash was pretty instrumental for to you as when you said you were in high school. Yeah, I mean the Clash yeah. for me was yeah. part of a kind of a political awakening, I guess. That you nice. know, music wasn't all about you know the cliche sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Of, you know, classic rock, particularly in the '70s and '80s. You know, when I was a kid, was you know more party kind of music. If you excluding a lot of political stuff in the in the late '60s. Um, but the dominant stuff played on classic rock radio when you went into a shopping mall or somewhere like that, you know, was just you know, kind of trite in a way in terms of subject matter. I mean, you know, fun songs, great stuff. But then The Clash comes along and, you know, they're they're rocking just as hard, just as interesting, but they're introducing political themes. You know, they're talking about Sandinistas and Nicaragua and they're, you know, yeah. addressing social issues, but there's still playing you know kicking butt as a rock band it wasn't like heavy downer music i mean it like fired you up and had a great spirit to it and it was political yeah so for me that was uh, caught you at the right time perfect timing yeah, yeah. you know every yeah. 16 year old starts right. fired up about some something yeah. or another and the, the clash was the soundtrack of that uh cool teenage angst yeah when we're we're going to get into talking about some of the adventures you've had, and you've had quite a few of them, uh, the first sort of s segment we'll talk about is moving. Now, you were born and raised in Spartanburg, South Carolina, right? That's right. Yeah, um, you, you you refer to it as uh, you went from refinishing boats in Charleston and almost managing a po video poker joint to moving to New York City, working at Spin Magazine by day and at the Peculiar Pub by night. Then moved back to South Carolina, worked for a congresswoman, considered law school, bailed out, moved back to Mississippi to get a degree in Southern Studies, write, manage a studio, and play in a roots rock band. You know, the typical peripatetic life of a meandering 20-something, searching for truth and pleasure. So where did you find the truth and where did you find the pleasure? Well, you've covered it all. Not, <laughs> I don't even have to <laughs> go it any further. That's right. Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I mean, my story is much like many people just searching for uh, some sense of their self. You know, what, who am I about? What am I? What do I want to do in life? Um, you know, and I think in college, you know, for a while there, I, I thought I was going to be an attorney and on that track. And I, you know, worked at a couple of firms and I just, I don't know. It never felt comfortable to me. It wasn't quite the right was, fit. Was that what you thought or was that what people around you thought? It was a combination of both. Yeah. You know, I think when I was younger, I, you know, I, I saw, I mean, people in the South, especially have that vision of in To Kill a Mockingbird or, mm -hmm. you know, Clarence Darrow or, or, you know, you're, and then you start to learn about, um, Thurgood Marshall and, you know, I, I think I had that sense of the, of, of the lawyer as the hero. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and they, and some are, of course, you right. know, and, and, but when I, you know, was immersed in the day to day and worked you know, for some attorneys and took some classes that were, you know, in terms of, uh, pre-law, you know. Wasn't as inspiring once you got into it? Not to me. I don't, yeah. I don't think it was a direct, yeah, it wasn't the direction I felt like I was destined to go, I guess. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what that was, but I just, I thought maybe I need to learn more about the world first before I go to law school, you know, and so when I graduated, I uh, went over to Europe and backpacked around like a lot of people do, and, um, you know, it was, and it was funny because that time, you know, we had no iPads or technology. And I, I had this backpack full of a bunch of books that must have weighed like 40 pounds. <laughs> you know, I quickly learned, okay, this is kind of ridiculous. I'm just going to drop them along the way and right. pick up more in hostels and that sort of thing. Trail of breadcrumbs. Yeah, follow yeah, the books. yeah, yeah. Follow the books. <laughs> and so on that trip, you know, I um, was, I had studied romantic poetry in college, you know, which is what... Classic kind of, you're 20 years old, and you, you know you're you're looking for that spark in the world. And I took a class in that, and we were reading Shelley and Keats and William Blake. And so you know, as part of my path, when I went to Europe, I we went to the Protestant cemetery in Rome, and you know we're we're doing all these you know nefarious things, having a good time as you do when you're young. And um, you know, I came across, well, I found Shelley's grave, and I you know it was it just fascinating to me because. 
when he died, I, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, he drowned and uh, they buried his body there, but his body was like sort of burned or cremated before they put it in the casket. But the legend is that his heart did not burn, you know, and that they took it back to and gave it to Mary Shelley in England huh. and it's and it's buried you know in, in a I can't remember it's a very famous you know story so his heart's elsewhere location. the rest of his body's there right and, and and you know and then he's got this quote on his grave from Shakespeare and I guess there's nothing like more pretentious than me referring to a, a quote from a romantic poet you know but but it struck me at that time and you know it was uh yeah, I think I sent it to you, but it was nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer sea, uh, sea change into something rich and strange. So I'm going through this personal transformation. I'm thinking about what do I want to be, you know, what I want to do. And for me, it, just, it was just sort of smacked me in the head, like no matter what he went through or what happened, he became something rich and strange or another form of matter, another form of energy, another kind of thought process. And so, you know, I took that to mean, wow, I, you know, I, in some ways I can't really mess up by pursuing a path, even if I don't know what that path is. Cause I had so much anxiety about, should I go to law school? Should I become a professor? What, you know, what do I want to do? And for me, it just was sort of like the uh, you know, cracking the wall into a different sort of freedom on the it other side. It lessened the burden, right. sort of took the weight off, and, yeah. and was it let you able just to go ahead and move forward without having to, the, the pressure and stress of, how do I do this? You right. know, is this the right thing to do? Exactly. Huh. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Is, is it the right thing to do? And so, you know. John and I, you, you, talk, you and I talk a lot about that. Like, I sort of want to reverse engineer things. I want to know where I'm going to be and then come back to where I am and sort of put the steps together, right? right. Um, and that... And, and that's a good way to think, but I think it's also been liberating to come at it the other way, which John really has taught me through creative process, where it's just keep touching it. Right. You don't you don't know where it's going to go, and, right. and you don't know where... I mean, that's the great part of it, right? Well, well Mark Sloan, I love this quote, he likes to say is that hindsight is 50-50, it's not 20-20. Mm. So when you're looking back, it was a series of decisions you made. Uh -huh. Should I do that or not do that? And then you choose that one and choose that one. So, you know, it's not... Yes, you might yeah. think you have some clarity looking back in hindsight, but really it was a series of 50-50 choices and you know, rolling the dice. Right, right, yeah. I always like to talk about just... Uh, uh, you know, you choose a direction, and you head that way. And you can even choose an outcome if you want to. But it, but you can choose like a goal at least. And and but as soon as you choose that direction, it's important to just go ahead and let go of that outcome and that goal. You know, you're heading th in this particular way. Right. But then when you let go of that outcome, what it does is just opens up infinite possibilities along the way. Something that you might completely walk past and overlook if you weren't completely wide open along the way. And it might be the most wonderful thing that ever happened. Absolutely. And, you, you know, you set your sights on that goal. And I think even if it doesn't work out or you get there, it's not as devastating if you have, right. if you have more of a, you know, situational awareness or you're more yeah. in the moment that, okay, well, maybe there's another road or another opportunity. Right. Uh, you know, what did you learn most about yourself in that period? And, and do you still find that to be true? Hmm. I mean, I, I think I learned uh, risk tolerance. You know, huh. the, just the ability to, to dive into a situation. You know, I got an internship with Spin, ended up staying a little longer as a research editor, assistant research editor with them. And, uh, but once again, you know, then I was thinking, well, rock journalism is pretty cool. I'm still writing songs, but I wasn't playing in bands. Um, and I wasn't sure of the path, but, you know, from what I learned from that period was, okay, it's okay to take those leaps, you know, and if they don't mm -hmm. work out, there's no need to feel like any sort of failure or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just our, part of learning that process. So then I, I take this crazy leap from working at Spin, you know, which, which is a relatively unstructured environment, kind of anything yeah. goes. And it, it really did, that was, you know, the era of uh, a lot of, you know, bad drug activity, a lot of bands kind of going down in flames. Uh, River Phoenix died, was on the cover when I was there, and then Cobain dies, that sort oh, of yeah. thing. And um, so I moved back to South Carolina uh, to work for a congresswoman, Liz Patterson, who I had interned for in college on Capitol Hill. She had decided to run for lieutenant governor. And that sort of put me back in that attorney frame of mind. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. hmm, maybe, maybe that path was calling me back, you know, and so let's go check that out. So I worked for her in, in a job that was an incredible learning experience and, and powerfully stressful. 
Too, mm-hmm. you know, we had nine months to raise six hundred thousand dollars, and I ended up being her finance coordinator. And we ended up losing the campaign, you know, by about eight percent. And had she won, I probably would have moved to Columbia, you know, worked mm-hmm. in her office, and gone straight into law school because it would have been down the street, you know, from the yeah, office. right. Um, it's quite when, the switch from Spin Magazine, right? But I, but I was, you know, I wasn't unhappy with her at all or the campaign, but with that position, I was really stressed out all the time, like every day. You know, it was causing me to drink too much and like come home from work and just uptight, you know? And yeah. so I thought, uh, you know, I once again had a lot of reflection about that and I started, you know, diving back into a lot of literary works. Uh, the Oxford American, the magazine uh, debuted that year, I think. And um, I was reading that. I was living with a couple guys from Walford and I discovered the Southern Studies program at Ole Miss and I, you know, it it's, may sound odd. A lot of people think about Southern studies in terms of studying history, or they think you're reading Shelby Foote or something like that. For me, it was it was kind of the opposite. It was sort of like, well, what is a Southern identity? What does all this mean? Is it part of my own, you know, kind of personal journey? And and I grew up in a small Southern town. You know, I had family members that, you know, ancestors that fought in the Civil War, went back many generations. And I wanted to have a new understanding of the culture in a contemporary sense. And know? in the one way, this is self-study. You're actually trying to find out more about who you are in the context of who the who exactly who the South is. And maybe that's what the liberal arts are all about, yeah. you know, to some degree, when you um, go into a graduate program. So, you know, I went down there. It was an amazing uh, experience in terms of I. It was for me. It felt like this uh, first professional personal choice I had made that was radically outside the framework of what I grew up with and Mm. what, you know, certain people expected or thought I might pursue and even what I thought I might pursue. And so, you know, I just was able to dive into the work and get on there. And I I was writing songs every single day. I was working for the newspaper. I was in graduate school. I was meeting people that were there, you know, purely for the sake of their, their artistic pursuit. And it was, you know, incredible. I, one of my favorite poets is David White, and I was, uh, he was here speaking, and he was giving a lecture, and, and he was talking about transitions, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, do you ever uh, find that transitions are smooth? And he gave me that big Scottish, like, chuckle, like, ha, 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 no. But do you find, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of friction when you're sort of, sort of ready to move to a, a new path. Um, you talked about, you know, going back and working and, and reading and sort of time for reflection. Right. Um, is it more, is there more friction or when you know, are you more quickly to move? I think it's both. I mean, I, I think there's like this almost feels like a crisis moment and it's kind of a, you know, first world problem to have. You know, I'm not starving. My family support me. I'm able to get a loan for graduate school and, you know, there's a path you can choose. And so it's it's not like you're in that desperate of a situation, but it feels like it psychologically. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to open a different door and dive in there and you feel like, wow, is this a huge mistake? But I think once the commitment is made and if you're pursuing it in earnest and you're trying to achieve a goal, you know, in that case, I thought I was going to be a professor and I was, you know, studying, you know, course of work very deeply and I was writing songs. So I thought maybe I could pursue music either full-time or on the side, at least enjoy it. And, you know, but once I, you know, to answer your question, I think that feels incredibly powerful and new and reinvigorating once you get beyond that you know critical decision right there's that sense of curiosity that we talk about with buff you know Mm -hmm. on the first episode that 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 for me and it sounds like for you too sort of leads you along like what is going to happen in new york this sounds really interesting you know and and once you step towards that then the curiosity rises and and you're hooked so dig south is such a fascinating conversation i want to cut to uh, one of my recent favorites, Courtney Barnett and Avant Gardner. Uh, Enjoy.
Courtney Barnett and the Avant Gardener, musician that uh, I found a lot of people in my circles seem to be gravitating towards. She's got a funny delivery, and uh, it's catchy tunes. Gets under your skin. It does, yeah. It's open to interpretation. You know, yeah, it's not. She's a, she's kind of ambiguous and vague, and so you can take different you know, readings from it. It's cool. And to your point earlier about the connections, she's from Australia, you know, and she's getting a lot of play, kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you know, coming back to Dig South, one of the things we like to ask everybody is is just talking about Charleston and Charleston as a person. And and uh, so from your perspective, you know, maybe. Who is Charleston and who is Charleston becoming? And, and what does Dig South play in this role? Hmm. I, I mean, that is a deep question. It really is. Trying yeah. to define a, a metropolis like this. Um, I've lived here 17 years this time, and I lived here you know, four or five months, five years before that. Um, but in the last five years, I think there's been this in, incredible acceleration of you know, growth um, and in so many different sectors, you know, technology, real estate, uh, the culinary scene is incredibly dynamic, world-class, um, the arts, music. And so it's, it's really exciting. Um, but I do feel like Charleston is also sort of awakening in a sense to um, maybe it's, I mean, this is a stretch, but maybe it's recapturing a revolutionary spirit it had in 1776. Mm. You know, I mean, that was a time of great growth and, and uh, you know, during the colonial period, a lot of wealth flowing into the colonies and, you know, deciding to make a break from an, another nation and, and found one. And, um, you know, the opportunities weren't there for everyone, obviously, but um, maybe maybe some of that spirit is, is kind of coming back to life in a sense that people are coming here to reinvent themselves again and remake themselves. You know, there's an old uh, friend of mine, Dick Reed, who used to talk about the, the old Charleston Renaissance, which was in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, and he used to refer to this moment right now. He still does refer to this moment right now as the new Charleston Renaissance. It's interesting because you're not yeah. the only person to... Uh, everybody seems to mark that same moment right now in the past four to five years. Big, right, Big yeah. things are happening. It's palpable. You know, it, not, we, we've is, been here about the is. same period of time. Yeah, and I think it goes beyond, um, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce and the CRDA, for example, have uh, studies that they put out, you know, in economic activity reports. And, and there are, of course, certain benchmarks, and there's an average of 43 people a day moving here, and you can mm. see the development. All, all that's very real and, and measurable. But at the same time, I think there's a, a, a sense of you know urgency around inventing new things new ideas and i know the support we've gotten from the community for dig south has been incredible and i don't i don't think it would have been possible five years prior to that Mm. you know um fire we launched in officially in 2012 and had the first event in 2013. timing and timing is everything timing is everything back us up a little bit what led to that timing um you know i mean some like like most entrepreneurs and most uh, business owners and even artists, you know, you're often trying to solve a problem. You're trying to fix something, mm-hmm. I think. You know, there's something that's bugging you and you think you have a better way to do it. Um, for me, you know, I've always been interested in technology and innovation, whether that's been in, you know, in music in terms of using Pro Tools and MP3s and marking your band or, you know, recording techniques, all, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, what was happening in my life is, you know, I was looking back and saying, well, how come every time I have a friend that's doing something interesting, they always have to move to another place to find the capital or recruit talent or do whatever it is to put it together. You know, they're moving to Silicon Valley. Uh, One of my best friends, you know, from Spartanburg moved there and worked for beatnik.com and, you know, was part of several startups. Um, I moved to New York, you know, because of those opportunities to be a music journalist and, and I did, you know, to play in bands didn't, didn't feel like uh, the opportunities were as great here, you know, uh, particularly in Charleston. It's a common um, theme for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. a very common yeah. thing. And, and so, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't pretend that my, my path was unique. But so I'm looking back over that period of time saying, well, why, you know, is, why is that the case in the digital age? Here we are, you know, people can distribute the information anywhere they want to. They can create a video, they can you know, record, you can do all of these things. You can build an app. And, you know, so you're learning about Facebook. It was launched in a dorm room at Harvard, you know, or you're hearing about Spotify and you're, in, and you're learning that people are doing these things all over the place. So I started to do a little research. I thought, well, does the South have any tech history? You know, is there any real connection here uh, in, in creative industries also? And 
it turns out that it exactly does, but not in a way you'd suspect. Apple, you know, the richest company in the world, leading tech company. Uh, the CEO, you know, Tim Cook is from Al- from Auburn. I mean, mm-hmm. sorry, he's from Alabama. He attended Auburn mm-hmm. University. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who you know runs operations for Facebook, is from Miami. Uh, Michael Dell, you know, is from Houston and launched Dell Computers in Austin. Uh, you know, Jim Barksdale, who was CEO of Netscape, is from Mississippi and. You know, so so time and again, I kept finding. And uh, let's see, you know, John Huey, who lives here in Charleston now, was, um, you know, from Atlanta originally and was running the Time Inc. You know, empire for a while. Uh, who else? God, there were so many. I mean, Ted Turner in Atlanta, he was CNN, uh, the head of ESPN, the presidents from North Carolina. And so I kept, you know, so obviously the talent is here. Right. I mean, there's no disputing that these aren't brilliant people who are now out doing great, successful things. And I, I felt like we had hit this sort of transition point or this critical uh, place in time in which the, uh, these new tools would allow us, allow people to grow and build companies here and not constantly have to move to another market mm-hmm. to do it. There's nothing wrong with moving somewhere to gain an experience in, in life and, you know, it's a great adventure, but why should you be forced to make that decision mm-hmm. every time for mul- for hundreds of years, you know, what it seemed like generations? And so, so oddly enough, as you're in, thinking about this, you're also I would imagine thinking that you love this place and you'd like to stay here. That's right. And not have to go elsewhere. I went to the Ad Age Digital Conference in New York, and that was extremely eye-opening to me in the sense that, you know, they had presenters from Foursquare and Twitter and CMO of, you know, Coca-Cola, Virgin Atlantic, Ariana Huffington's the one of the keynote presenters. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. These are brilliant people. You know, this, I, I'm really inspired by it. But once again, why is this not happening this way in the South? Or didn't seem to be. And, you know, there are uh, you know, other examples like South by Southwest and certain events. And Austin was starting to emerge as, as a tech center, too. Um, but I thought, hmm, well, I, I think this will fly, you know, in Charleston. We have Benefit Focus and Blackboard and People Matter. And, you know, yeah. these, these companies are merging. The Charleston Digital Corridor is achieving some success, helping companies kind of grow out of there. And, you know, I felt like the timing was good for something like that. So I came back and I did more of that research I described earlier. Of, you know, are there, are there, you know, tech leaders from the South? Yes, there are. Uh, I looked in Nashville, launched the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Um, Atlanta had the Atlanta Tech Village. Georgia Tech was doing some interesting things. Uh, Raleigh, Durham, you know, Red Hat's a very successful company there. I'm sure it, the more you dig in, the more you're excited you're becoming right, about this. Right. And, and these little things that were sort of bubbling up in Charleston were happening in these other centers. You know, they're mm-hmm. happening in Raleigh, Durham. They're happening in Nashville, happening in, even in Chattanooga, Atlanta. And I thought, well, you know, I don't think Charleston alone can, can sustain this or, is, or has a large enough market to support it. So we decided that it needed to have a regional approach and that there was a lot more strength in thinking like a region, you know, because people in the South tend to uh, know each other, the, you know, the families are close. We have friends that live across the region. There's a lot of what I consider social capital here. And so that I don't necessarily, that I didn't find personally in New York. And uh, you know, I had friends that lived in other areas that didn't seem to find it in LA. You're not, not the same spirit of connectedness. Right. So I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe I can parlay that and my love for technology and what's happening around the region into a bigger moment, you know, bigger experience. So, so everything that you're doing says go, go, go. What, if anything, ever said no? Good question. So what said no was, can I raise the money to do it? You know, how, how can I pull this together? And I, you know, I'm shaving one day and I find this like lump on my neck and I think, well, I don't feel sick or anything. It's not a gland. It's in a weird spot. I'm like, what the hell is that? You know? And so, um, you know, a few, like a week passes and I show Sunny and I'm like, what do you think this is? She's like, I don't know, but you know, it didn't go away. So you, you need to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor and, um, you know, in the doctor sends me to a specialist. I go to the specialist. He's taking it, you know, way too seriously oh, <laughs> so like, for, okay, comfort, right? for my comfort, you know, and he, he's discovering something there and he says, well, you know, this could be a number of things. He wants to do a biopsy, you know, all of that. I go and I do, you know, an MRI and it turns out that I've got a tumor and he, you know, says, and this is like, 
late a Thursday or Friday, maybe I got to get the MRI and he does the biopsy, but I don't have the results for, you know, a few days. So I go home and I, you know, you know, how Oprah always had her aha moment. I sort of think of this as my ah shit moment or oh shit, you know, yeah. kind of. Uh, anyway, that's the way I think of it to be able to be honest about it. And so, yeah. you know, it turns out fortunately to be benign. You know, it's not that big a deal. It's, you know, it's it's fine. I mean, it's something that, you know, it's going to be a pain. Eventually, you have to get removed. But Funny enough to scare the heck out of you for a minute. Yeah, it's not going to kill yeah. me. And so Sonny and I have a, you know, sort of a, you know, it's a come to Jesus moment for me. We talk about it. And she's like, well, I think you should do it. You know, I'm like, what if I, if I didn't launch Dig South and I just stayed in this job? And what if it had been malignant, you know, and I had, had nine months and had died and, it, and not, you know, taken another great adventure? And mm -hmm. so, so that was all you needed just to jump off the cliff and say, let's do this. That was it. Yeah. yeah for me, yeah, that was yeah. all I needed to, to That's interesting because sometimes step, people can yeah. point right to a moment and sometimes it's less easy to describe to, yes. to pinpoint that. But, but with you in this case, that was clear. And, then, was, and then once yeah. you started smooth, I mean, I, want, I don't want to say smooth sailing, but uh, things started to fall into place. They did. You know, I don't want to, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to call that a near death moment because people have very serious, you know, cancer issues. Yeah. But, but for me, it was a, okay you know this this could have been serious and so yeah it was, it was it was definitely that turning point so then you know fourth of july weekend comes and i'm thinking of it over that weekend i kind of come up with the name and i think all right let's do it you know let's launch so um you know sunny and i had planned most of this but i couldn't convince her to come into the business yet so you know we hired harriet lee who did a fantastic job yep. you know working with us harriet had great contacts you know anybody who knows her she has fantastic energy very enthusiastic um she came on board then i hired and i'd already met with nicole garrigan but you know nicole came on board as our producer a little bit later and so the team started to gel and as more people heard about it like misty lister and other friends like just volunteered just loved the idea i wanted to be a part of it and you know help me pull it off nice. so um you know i kind of used a lean startup method where i didn't write a full-fledged full-fledged business plan which i'd done before for other ideas i really put together more of a run of show and you know what it would look like who what type of presenters we would have and i kind of you know i modeled it on i looked at probably seven or eight different uh, interactive type conferences, technology conferences, and I just wrote the program, you know, because people needed something to sort of bounce off of. And I figured, okay, along the way, they'll tell me that makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I shopped it around to uh, the Charleston County Economic Development Office, the Charleston Regional Development Alliance, uh, the Digital Corridor, many others. And then uh, we went to Spark and, you know, met with those guys. And they were the very first ones to say, we love this. We, you know, we think it'll fly. And they cut us a check. You know, so they, and, and, you know, for me, that was a great metaphor, Spark. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure it is for them, but yeah. wow. Okay. Literally our first cast check is from a company named Spark. This is real. This is real. Yeah. Nice. And nice. so, um, you know, we closed that and then it just hit the ground running. Then we thought, okay, well, let's test the, test the waters and see if people, if the community would, would dig it and get behind it and be excited about launching, you know, a version of South by Southwest, but in the Southeast. And, um, and I mean the South by Southwest interactive part primarily. We had a, a strong music component, but not on the level that they do. And there's not, you know, a music industry of that kind, right. you know, that scale in Charleston. So anyway, we decided to launch a Kickstarter campaign. And we thought that would be a way to test the community and fire it out there and see mm -hmm. if people support it. Uh, we set a goal, I think, about it was around $12,000 or so. We ended up raising about 15000 through the platform and then another 5000 of people who couldn't contribute uh, you know, because of the nature of their company or whatever, through Kickstarter, but wrote us checks to support it. Wow! And so we ended up raising about twenty thousand dollars, which, you know, was as was not the majority of what it cost to launch the first year of Dick South at all. It was a, a percentage, but it was the most important percentage for us because it was a groundswell, right? And, and it meant that people believed not not just in our team, but in the idea the itself. Idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you know, I I took that as a you know, hit the throttle. I mean, yeah. full on, you know, and at that point, there's go time. Yeah. Even if we go broke or lose a lot of money, we're, we're all in at this yeah. point. It seems like entrepreneurs by the very definition, uh, relate to a call to adventure, yes. right? That, yeah. um, it's sort of built into the DNA of that person. What are the threads in that community that you, uh, find inspiration or admire? Um, well, they have a high tolerance for risk in general, you know, so they're willing to take those leaps. And 
and even realize that you know it could could mean financial ruin or it could mean I have to start over again. And I think entrepreneurs have something in their DNA that they're okay with that. You know, my wife has it very much. She's launched you know multiple businesses, and Sonny has done that many times. Um, and then number two, my sense was like when I toured the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. And when I toured the American Underground and Raleigh, and then when I met a lot of entrepreneurs here, is they feel like they're inventing the future, you know, literally. Like, this is the thing everybody's going to use. This is the new thing. Um, and, you know, there's like this kind of burning manic passion. And sometimes that, you know, has very high highs and very low lows. Yeah. That, for me, I fed off that energy. You know, you, right. and, and I always made sure that I usually went to their office whenever, the, even if they wanted to come to ours, just because I wanted to sense that. To get in what there. The, what, what's the space like? You yeah. know, you want to feel that, that vibe. Sure. And, um, yeah, but that sense of what I'm creating and doing is going to be the next big tool, the next thing that solves this problem. You know, I, I think entrepreneurs have that. Well, it's got to have. It's got to be an amazing opportunity to work with so many different people that have that similar mindset. You know, it's really right. Uh, a wonderful opportunity, and you've uh, helped certainly shape it in our community. Um, and it we, sounds like similar to what uh, uh, Alex and I have done with this radio show here which is we've this has been our own call to adventure we 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 started this not having a real you know this is this is our step into a different realm of entrepreneurship and it sounds like you were doing the same thing as you launched dig south you know you're doing this sort of new venture as you're uh joining forces with a lot of other people doing new ventures had to be pretty exciting absolutely you know and another one last thing about the entrepreneurs i mean to use that revolutionary war analogy they're sort of like the minutemen out there on the front lines and the leading brands now are realizing you know how easily disrupted things can be you know they're losing giant market share and they're having to Mm. pivot and think of new you know uber comes roaring in and you know facebook crushes MySpace and, you know, AOL, you know, takes a dive. To, it can happen quick. It can happen very quickly. Well, it sounds like that's where things are headed in Charleston right now. And, I, and of course, you know, we've got a lot more we could talk about. I think we should just have a panel discussion at Dig South where we get to interview you. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Oh, yeah, I'm already thinking of a few things we can do. Yeah, thank you, John and Alex. I mean, this is... Where can we find you? Where can we find Dig South? Online, of course. Online at digsouth.com. Digsouth.com. You can right. find me there. Uh, feel free to email me at stanfield, S-T-A-N-F-I-E-L-D, at digsouth.com. And I hope everybody will come April 26th through 28th at the Charleston Gilliard Center for the, the New Gilliard Interactive Festival. It's going to be Excellent. really cool. All right, That's looking right. forward to it. Thanks. Thanks for your time, Stan. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Cheers. What a great conversation with Stan. Love having him in the uh, OM headquarters. Yeah, excellent. Good guy. You know, one of the uh, interesting quotes that I love that he said when talking about music and playing guitar, uh, and I don't play, but he said, I think it never, I find that it never gets any harder and it never gets any easier. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like an irony uh, at first, but it's, uh, I think that's the way it goes. It's sort of finding a way to, to finding some comfort in that middle ground and, and there's no sort of, uh, attachment or aversion attached to it. You're just uh, uh, residing in the present. You, you might say you just are where you are. Right. <laughs> right. You know, right, it's, right. And it makes me think about time a little bit and sort of the past and the present and the future. And I know you and I have had that conversation a lot and you have a wonderful way in which you sort of think about those three time frames. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm sort of a visual learner and I envision things in my mind when I'm thinking about these things. And I've always thought of the past as being this long line extending behind me and the future being this uh, another long line extending sort of infinitely in front of me and the present being this very thin slice that we're residing right in between those two places. And at one point I was able to just see it completely differently where where the whole thing flipped just as a visual where... I envisioned the past as being the thin slice and the future as the thin slice on either side of this actually hugely expansive moment of the present that we're in all the time. And it's really the only thing that's real. So the rest of it is fully abstract anyway. So it's, it's, a, it's a very thin slice. And it, it changed the whole dynamic of how I, I reside actually in the present, thinking mm-hmm. about it that way. Yeah, and if you think about the city 
and the past. And we talk a lot about the city as a person and sort of think about who he or she will look like in the future. Stanfield Gray and Dig South are, you know, an active uh, ingredient in sort of shaping what that looks like. I mean, and, yeah. and he's managed to sort of take all his interests and sort of weave them together in a quilt that, you know, involves music and comedy and technology and futurist. Uh, really fascinating and, right. and wonderful to see. And as he says, through a series of 50-50 Right. Chances right. and choices. I, love that. I think that was, this uh, is how he ends up here. You know, Mark Sloan said yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight yeah. is not twenty twenty. It's, it's fifty fifty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's great to see that that's the way that that can develop. Is you know, you're making these decisions along the way, and at the end of the day, he created something that that he did. As I was listening to uh, On Being the other day, and 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 this woman was interviewing. Um, uh, Mary, what is her name? Mary Catherine Bateman. And she wrote a book called Composing a Life. And it feels like Stan's done exactly that, just composed this life where suddenly he's, you know, uh, uh, working for and with Dig South. And it's, it combines all of his loves all at once. Right. Wonderful to see. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending another hour of your time with us. Thank you to uh, Thomas Kenny for making it all happen. Ohm Radio for allowing us the opportunity to share conversation with you. We'll see you again next week. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure.